Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals, one of the most watched and listened to podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. I'm Randall Carlisle. My co-host is Rachel Santizo. Hello. Nice to have you back. You were under the weather last week. I was. I'm glad to be back. Feeling better? Yes. And our guest is Karen Kelly. Hello. Hi. Hello. You're, You're talking to thousands of people. Okay, then. All right. Say hi, thousands of hi, people. Hi, thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons uh, I asked Karen to be on our podcast is we so frequently focus on people in recovery, who how they've recovered, what their stories uh-huh. are, and everything to try to inspire other people that recovery is possible. And the one thing we don't talk about much is what is it like on the other side of the fence working with people in recovery? And yeah. Karen is a therapist at uh, one of our, uh, one of Odyssey House's residential houses. Uh, and so I thought it'd be interesting just to, to find out. It's an easy job, I'm sure. I mean, working, <laughs> working with people who have been addicted to heroin oh, yeah. for yes. 15 years, and then you go like that, and, and then you fix them, right? Yeah. yeah, then we fix them, and they come into treatment, and they're happy to be there. <laughs> the, that, the thing you've got to realize, uh, Rachel and I, because Rachel's program director at, at another one of our residential houses, people are not happy. No. Uh, I wasn't no. happy when I... When I finally decided I was an alcoholic and had to get yeah. clean, it was not a happy experience. Yep. And, and so d- describe the average person that you deal with <laughs> when they first come in, because that's one of the hardest times. When they first come in, they don't want to be there. A lot of them are court-ordered. So they, have, they think they have no choice. They always have a choice. Because um, they can walk out yeah, anytime. Yeah, they right. can mm-hmm. leave whenever they want. We're not going to sit there. We don't lock the doors and hold them hostage. Um, once they get the, the sobriety part, the recovery part doesn't seem to be hard. It's changing their behaviors. Right. That seemed, that's the difficult one. Having to wait to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't just run on their own and just do what they want to do. They have to go, we have structure that we have to go through and that part's the hardest. They can stay clean and sober the whole but man, following those rules and learning how to take, be patient and wait, that seems to be one of the hardest things that they, that they deal with. Because the belief is that uh, people who had been running and gunning on the streets yep. for a long time had no structure in their life, like, like most everybody else yep. has to have structure. And so describe the structure that they rebel against. So a lot of it is just being told to wait. That's one of the biggest things is being told... You have to wait, or you have to follow this. One of the biggest ones is holding themselves and other their other peers accountable for their actions. Whoo! That is. explain that because you know when when we're on a, when we take some of our clients to like VOA detox or something, mm-hmm. everybody says because most a lot of the people have had some kind of jail or prison background mm-hmm. and and they say stuff like uh, it's a snitch program yep. so yep. describe the snitch program at odyssey so part of our philosophy and our philosophy and I love I love this and we read it every day in our group is I see myself best in the eyes of my now we say peers in the eyes of my peer that's where that's not snitching that's where it's important to hold your peers accountable. That's why they think that it's snitching. So if somebody's aware of somebody else having a cigarette, which is off limits in the, in the house, 
their responsibility is to let everybody else know or let the staff know, hey, this person has a cigarette in here because that cigarette is going to set everybody else up to want to use, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of holding holding them accountable, saying, hey, this isn't allowed. It's not a snitch. Nobody's going to jail because of it. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody's getting. Yeah, nobody. Yeah, and that's what I what I stress to them is that I also stress, especially to the prisoners, that or the former prisoners, that nothing bad's going to happen if they hold one another accountable. And they're extremely adaptable. They've adapted to prison life. They can adapt to our program. Right. If if they can do that, they can do this. And so. They, so I have them start with a concern encounter. They, they call them encounters. I'm concerned when you oversleep. I'm concerned when you don't come into the group. I'm concerned. Then they don't feel like it's so much snitching. Right. And I think a lot of it is the verbiage as well. Yes. Because it's not snitching. Snitching something that you did in your prior life. He did yep. this. Get him in trouble. Yep. Right. Kind of snitching is something you do on the street to try to get ahead or to do something. There's something um, surrounded by that word itself to do to get ahead. Right. And so you don't snitch when you're holding exactly. someone accountable. It's because you're concerned and you're trying to. There you go. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. So snitching is not even an appropriate word. The other thing I think it does, the first couple of times I watched encounters, uh, is it teaches people a civilized way yes. to deal mm-hmm. with other people Right. As opposed to maybe if you were on the street and somebody upset you, you'd go F you or something yep. like that. And yeah. this is, and if you'd watch an encounter process, it'd be like, uh, Rachel, I'm concerned about mm-hmm. the safety of our community. If you want to use the smoking thing, because yep. I because I saw you smoking. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I'm concerned that other people in, in the house mm-hmm. are going to be triggered to want to smoke. And that violates one of the rules. Then right. you would respond how? Because we oh. stand up in front of each. I mean, the ones yeah. I saw, you sit up in front of a group and you addressed each other. And right. So, so I would respond to your concern, Randall. I understand your concern, and I, I realize that I did set everyone else. And I appreciate you holding me accountable because yep. you're right. I did set everybody up. So I get to take ownership for my actions as well. Right. And you're recognizing you're what con- I had taken ownership right. of to, right. to say. And so you're not getting in trouble. I'm not getting in trouble. Yep. Like yeah. you said, but and and if you if you think about all of us in in life, how we have to deal with bosses and yes. or right. spouses or <laughs> yep. boyfriends right. or girlfriends. I mean, it's it's it it's much more productive to talk like that than it is to mm-hmm. say I'm going to whoop your ass. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, because exactly. that's that's what we do is we react, right? Yep. So it yeah. allows us to take a step back and react different. It's just teaching us a new way of life from what we've known our mm-hmm. entire life. Well, you know, communication is key, and mm-hmm. you know, we get a lot of the we get a lot of older gentlemen that come in. Well, you know, I'm mature enough. I can just go to that person and say, Hey, you did this. You right. messed up. I said, I get that, but maybe that maybe somebody can't speak up. They don't know how to speak up for themselves. Right. So this is a safe environment so that they can speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. I said also, I said, you might respond with something that's a little bit harsh, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. And that's, that's going to be them fighting words or whatever. I mm-hmm. said, we're learning how to communicate in a more civilized manner. What we do at Odyssey House, and this is how I put it with all of our clients, is we're preparing you mm-hmm. to live in society on society's rules. Right. Right. Yeah. 
that's all we're doing. And that's exactly where, you know, I'm coming from a law enforcement background. Everything I do there, I look at what's legal, what's not legal. Sure. Right? So I look at everything from a law enforcement background. And that seems to be, that helps a lot of those that are from prison, some of the hardcore. Yeah. They understand that. They're like, okay. Then they understand that a little bit better. Speak well, Did, since you brought it up, tell us yeah. about your law enforcement background. Um, I had ten. I was a police officer for ten years in Salt Lake City, from '88 to '98. So yep. you may have been arrested by her. Right, you know, might, yeah, right. you might have been, or at least driven home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're at least or given a lecture. Um, yeah, I worked in the Rose Park Fair Fair Park area. Okay. Um, yeah, it was very enjoyable. How did you do? How did you get there? Tell us your story. Well, I. Well, so I was the first black female officer hired in the city of Utah in 88. Yes. Really? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Way in, to go. Yeah, in 88. Love it. And um, that was never my dream. Didn't want to do it. Got talked into taking the test. I took the test, and 10 years later, I left. <laughs> 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 but it was an experience. It was an experience. Why? I mean... Obviously, you dealt with some people who you might be dealing with now in your new job, but what mm-hmm. it's a pretty radical switch to go from being a police officer to a therapist at a behavioral health treatment center. You would think, but that's why I only lasted 10 years at the police department. I'm more therapy. I'm more people-oriented. Yeah. I want to help. Not that arresting people doesn't help, but that's not the go-to. That doesn't have to be it. So I was very much more of the social worker, the therapist when I was working as a police officer. And, and <clears throat> all those years ago, that was not necessarily the, the no. goal of the police force. No, it, it was not. And I, you know, growing up in Rose Park area, I lived in Rose Park. I knew a lot of the criminal elements that were there. I, you know, I grew up with them. I sure. knew them as kids. And so I had a whole different um, relationship with them. And I find that now helping me at Odyssey House, I have a lot of those same kids coming in. <laughs> yeah, I have all those same goes kids. Goes around, comes around. It, it does. Yeah. I have them coming in, or I know their grandparents or their yeah. parents, and so it mm-hmm. just makes the dynamics so much better, and they feel more at ease when they're there. It's that relatability. It is. It is. And I, I get it. I get them. I have a fam- Our my family history is substance abuse. I've had over, you know, I've lost cousins that have died from overdoses. Um, our family, if it feels good, we do it. That's what. The, Which is what. <laughs> um, you know, I, I tease that a lot of my family members paid for Odyssey House. So <laughs> we should have our name on it. <laughs> <laughs> a memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should have our name on it. But it works, you know. Let's talk about race for a second. You brought it up. You grew up in a mm-hmm. West Side neighborhood. Uh, you became the first black female cop in, in the whole state. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the reaction? I mean, there's still tension between minorities and yep. police. Yep. Back then, it was much worse, I'm sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what was their reaction to you? I mean, did you, like you sold out to our community or something. <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not, most people were, they were surprised, of course, right? Um, but they didn't seem, even the ones that I grew up with, everybody that I grew up with, they didn't look at me as a sellout. They looked at me more of um, somebody that could help them understand, right? Somebody that could, I, I had numerous times where they would come to my house 
I'd be off duty and they would come to my house to get some help because they trusted mm. that I'm going to do oh, the right okay. thing and not, yeah. And I try to do, that's what I try to do. That's part of what police work is. It's that community-oriented right. policing. That's what you do. And one of the things I was told back then is we don't want you getting involved in the community affairs. Really? So, so was yeah. it on the other side, or can you speak to that? Was it with the police department? Did you feel anything on that end of it, then? It was just, I felt that they, I just felt that at the time, they yeah. didn't, um, that they were getting rid of the community-oriented policing. And so they, yeah. for whatever reason, they wanted to not have me so involved. In it the was black community. More like incarceration's the yeah. answer. Yes. Wow. That's it. Yep. Well, yeah. since we're, so, yeah. okay. we're recording, uh, we, people watch these podcasts at different times throughout the year and everything, but we're doing this during Black History Month. wanted to ask you, I, I saw this study uh, from UCLA that overdose deaths uh, rose 49% among black Americans from 2019 to 2020, compared to 26% increase with white Americans. And, and they concluded, that, you know, and they were talking about COVID and the, and the mental mm-hmm. issues and everything that people were turning to drugs and alcohol. But they concluded at the bottom, um, this, the increasingly dangerous drug supply has disproportionately put black and native communities at risk. We need to reverse deep-seated inequities in access to treatment, harm reduction, and services that can help people stay safe. Mm -hmm. And so I I guess my question was, I don't see that, at least at Odyssey, and that's the only thing I can speak about, I don't see that we have any racial inequities at Odyssey, but is, is it harder for minorities to get into treatment programs and stay in treatment programs? It's not harder for them to get into it, it's the trust. Mm. And also a lot of times with minorities, we don't talk about what's happening at home. Yeah. That's our business. That's our business. Mental health treatment. As a cultural thing. As a cultural thing. Mental health treatment is just suck it up. Yeah. Just deal with it. You know, there's a lot of old, you know, a lot of the older black people that have, they've been drinking th- their whole life. They have a drinking problem, but they're able to function just fine because that's what they do. You don't talk about it. You don't share it. You don't fix it. It's nothing's wrong. If you can provide for your family and do what you need to do, we don't talk about this. So somebody oh. coming into a treatment program with a cultural background like that, one of the things all treatment programs try to do is get people to be honest and come clean and share their feelings because their feelings and their beliefs are one of the reasons why they're dealing with an addiction. Exactly. So, so is it harder for minorities coming in to... It is, and especially if there's no minority therapist. Yeah. Ah. Um, they just don't trust. So a black person dealing with a white therapist... It's, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard. That person has to come from their neck of the woods in a sense mm-hmm. and you, it's really important to understand the black community and how you know how black people think how not just black people how blacks think how native americans it's different it's different how do we change that like just opening our eyes and realizing that that it is different yeah. One of the th- one of the things I struggle with the most, and that a lot of I think a lot of people struggle with, is white privilege. Mm. 
the word white privilege, right? It's, it doesn't mean that, that white people are given, were born with a silver spoon and that their life was wonderful. What it's saying is that when they walk into a grocery store or a department store, nobody's watching them. But when that black person walks into the grocery store or the department store, oh, they're being watched by security. If they're walking down the street, you don't see, with a white person, you don't see the old lady clutching her purse. When the black person walks down the street, you see them clutching their purse. That's what white privilege stands for. Okay. And it's true. It, it's true. Have you experienced that? Oh, all the time. An yeah. example. Just a great example is one time I was, this was a while ago, but at Levitt, I think it was Levitt's Furniture, or Granite Furniture, I was going to get my dad a recliner chair. And my friend was white that was with me. And a guy comes up and says, can I help you? And I said, no, I'm just looking for some recliners and stuff. You know, and he says, okay, thank you. But he wouldn't leave three feet behind me. He stayed three feet behind me the whole time. Wait, you think you're going to steal a recliner? Like, that's what I said to him. I finally stopped yeah. and said, do you think I'm going to take an effing recliner, put it on my back and walk it? Uh, 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 and then he turned around and walked away. <clears throat> Ooh, that makes me sad. Or you go into, it's mostly happened with my family members. I haven't had it happen much with me, but a lot with my family members. Where I had one, my cousin's girlfriend went into the ZCMI and found an old antique watch on the floor. I mean, you could see it was old and antique. Took it to security. They said she tried to steal it. They called the police. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, yeah, we see that a lot. Um, it, it's just some old adages that... Old fears, I think, I think it is. I have a cousin who had his own fire protection business. He got a great bid over the phone. As soon as he walked in to meet the manager and they realized he was black, all of a sudden the bid was given to somebody else. Hmm. How do you, I mean, I, Rachel asked a great question. How do you change that? I mean, <clears throat> and it's not enough because we've done some trainings at Odyssey. It's not enough mm -hmm. to say, Oh, I recognize black people. I have friends as black uh -huh. who right. are black, right. and that's not enough. I think, I think it needs to start with applications. Get rid of the race thing. Get rid of the. Yeah, why you, do they? Wife, I black. know. Why? I'm not really sure either. Yeah, because it's, it's like, like Hispanic, Native American, yes. black, yes. Right. Caucasian. Like why does that even yep. matter? And if get rid of that. Yeah, get rid of that. And it's not, I'm not saying I don't want people to see my color. Because yeah. it's different, right? I'm different. I want them to see me. I'm different. Sure. But it shouldn't be all they see. Mm. I should be able to do an application for a rent. They don't need to know what my race is. No. They, that shouldn't matter. Mm. But it does. They need to start getting rid of that. Hmm. It should just be, are you human? Yeah. Are you well, the human race? Yep. Well, now yeah. some more you know, enlightened sites now say, I choose not to answer, uh -huh. yeah. which, which is a step in the right direction, exactly. I guess. Exactly. And that's what we're starting, that's what we're starting to encourage people to do. Don't put down what, don't do it. Yeah. The census, I can see it. But anything else, it, there's, no, there's no reason for it. If we're not judging people by the mm. color of their skin, why are we asking what the color of the skin are on applications? 
Yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. And, and, and taking it back to a treatment program, I would presume when you're talking about the mistrust or not wanting to bear feelings, and, and it's easier if I'm black and you're black and I'm more willing to deal mm-hmm. with you, that we should have, this would be impossible to do right now because of the shortage of workers, but we should have our therapeutic community represent the same proportion as our minority client population. Yep, true. So it would work better? I I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and also, you know, I grew up in, you know, Salt Lake City, white Salt Lake City. (laughs) So that racial difference, I almost don't see it a lot of times unless it's brought to my attention. But I, what I try to help with my black clients that aren't from Salt Lake, mm. right? That's a totally different story. The ones that yeah. aren't from Salt Lake, they are very distrustful. Oh, yeah. Very, very distrustful of Salt Lake, of the white people. And because they were treated, they were probably treated a lot more harshly than we have been, mm-hmm. my generation has been. Yeah. Um, and so I try to share that the same way as not all black people are like, all white people aren't, aren't like either. Right. Right? You get that 1% or whatever of them that are bad. Right. Same thing with law enforcement, yeah. same thing with everything else. Mm-hmm. So give them the same benefits that you want them to give you. And that seems to work a little bit more, too. You know, on, a, on another topic, uh, I've watched your interaction with our clients, and you seem to be, and, and you seem to be a rather beloved therapist. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and you get along really well with them. I do. Uh, but obviously there are, there are boundaries that have to be drawn and lines, mm-hmm. lines that they can't cross. How, did, how do you get along so well with them? Because an awful lot of clients don't like the therapists, you know. Right. I'm not clinical. I don't talk clinical. I don't act clinical. I don't. We're all in this together. The only thing that makes me different from them is that I have a lot of education, a whole lot of student loans. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, Yeah, but when we do, when I'm doing therapy with them, we're talking. We're doing this. Right. That's all therapy. We're just doing this. Helping them restructure and re, helping them reframe some of their negative thinking. Right? This is who I am with them. I joke. I I talk about punching them in the throat, which I get warned about. Karen, can't hit the clients. I'm not really going to punch it's them in the throat. It's not one of our therapeutic <laughs> techniques. It's not a therapeutic <laughs> technique, no. So. But it eases their mind. Right. Now we're on the same page. Yeah. Right? I'm very loving. I'm very touchy. I'm very, I'm, that's just who I am naturally. Right? Mm-hmm. Cheryl's always saying, Karen, you can't give them hugs. I'm like, I know. Okay. Yeah, it's that connection piece. But it's that, yeah, it's that connection piece. And we have fun. Therapy can be fun. It doesn't have to be this hard road. It can be fun. And they know, I hope they know, my clients, that all the clients, that I 100% care. Oh, yeah. I 100% care about Every and I get all emotional when I think about that, but I truly love every one of my clients. Really? Even oh yeah, I I truly truly do. I really do. They're just they're awesome. 
I have some of the most hardcore. We get a lot of the hard, some hardcore right. prison ones that come in. You right. know, they have the swastika tattoos, and they have the white power, mm-hmm. and they have. And man, we get along so well. So somebody yeah. who's a member of a white power gang in mm-hmm. prison and has a black therapist, and you get along. Uh, we get mm-hmm. along great. Yeah, I've we get along. We get along. We have a client now who's a. Was was the head of the Texas Aryan Nation something, mm-hmm. and we hit it off so well. Wow! Yeah, yeah. I have so much respect for him, and he has the same for me. I've seen it because i i would i bring cli- I would yep. bring clients in, and yep. I've seen it, and I it's that relatability and that trust and that communication. Yep. It's because, regardless, like where you come from or gang affiliation mm-hmm. or anything, it's actually the reasons why you join gangs or the reasons why you use. We all that have connection. that commonality of why we do the things we yep. do, and it's all the same reasons. Yep, it's why that, we do that. It's that connection. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's that connection that makes yeah. a difference. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, based on the, and this applies to you too, Rachel. I don't deal with clients directly like you guys do. Uh, and you said you care about every one of them really so do. much, and I totally believe that. I know, known you for a long time, and I know you care. How do you? There's a lot of failure in in, yes. in yeah. treatment programs, and yeah. so you've worked really hard with a client. You love that client, mm-hmm. and then you see him just you know, leave the program and back yeah. in jail, back on the mm-hmm. street, back mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, maybe overdose and dies from yep. Yep. something like that. How do you deal with that? Whew. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in, the, in, in our population, there's going to be tragedies and miracles all the time. And you know, that's what you sign up for. Like you, you just know that yeah. that's what you sign up for. Um, I didn't know that's what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. And being at Odyssey House for almost five years, the amount of overdose deaths from my former clients mm-hmm. is mind-boggling to me. Mm-hmm. It just, and it breaks my heart when I read or have seen or yeah. hear about, and I'm like, oh my God, what? And what I always tell the clients is, it's not a matter of if anymore, it's when. Yeah. They have so much stuff out there. It's, and I use those other deaths as examples. Look, <laughs> this is real. This is, nobody's, nobody's invincible. It hit these people that never thought in a million years it would touch yeah. them. That they never. thought were invincible. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Never thought in a million years. That would bother them. That would hit them. How do you deal with that, though? I mean, do you go home and cry at night, or what do Sometimes. you do? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yep. A lot of the times. There's sometimes I cry in the office with another client. Mm-hmm. Really? That's what saves me. <laughs> I think uh, <clears throat> I think when this stuff happens, um, you cry a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, you, it also, I use it for motivation because we still have a lot of work to do. A lot. Yep. And that's, um, it's unfortunate even, you know, a couple weeks ago when I was up, at this Senate, one of the legislatures was telling us it's basically still a moral failure. Yeah. You know, there's still so misunderstanding and miseducation about what this disease is really about. So when this stuff continues to happen as often as it does, we still have a lot of work to do. And we're here for a minimal time. So the more imprints that we make and the more we use our voice and try to wrap around and hug these clients and use our stories, motivation than hopefully for the people that will come 
past us, they can continue on the legacy. I forgot to turn my phone off. That's okay, I Randall. This is a, so keep, keep <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you coming from like the law enforcement and now we're doing this expungement and trying yep. to do the fees and stuff. So this is a Which huge. Which should have been done long. Right. So it's like just hopefully our little imprint right now with what we're doing, where the relatability and the trust, you know, with the population, mm -hmm. then who knows what's going to happen in 10 years. So it's like these little markers at a time which you think we'd be a lot further. Yep. We should be a lot further, even with race, with all this stuff. It's yep. really it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't even know why we're talking about it, but unfortunately we I'm are. I'm going to go out and start drinking again. You guys, <laughs> you guys, you guys have depressed me. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah it, can, it's, it can be depressing, but then we look at other clients who have come in and, man, rocked it i mean yeah i mean rocked it and i have one in particular mm -hmm. that i'm thinking about and she was our first federal client yes she was our first federal client and she was looking at 10 years hispanic she was looking at mm. 10 years yeah. all she three was, of us know her yes her. we yep. are yeah she was looking at 10 years yeah after treatment right mm -hmm. that was i mean that was yeah. what it was going to be and she struggled and i said why are you still here? Because I, let me just go do my 10 years, yeah. right? And she goes, you know, Karen, I've never completed anything in my life. Mm. I'm going to complete this. Yeah. And I said, I said, you do this and you're going to see a difference. My brother used to be a federal probation officer, so I understood what that was. Yeah. And I said, you do this, you'll be amazed at what's going to happen. And she's like, well, I know I'm going to do the 10 years, but I'm going right. to do this. And so she did. And... Her mom was her mom was dying and sick, and she wanted to go to Vegas to see her. And it was everybody's going. There's no way that's going to happen. No way. She completed our program. Mm -hmm. Her probation officer allowed her to go. Right. Allowed her to be in her daughter's wedding. She got a job, and I went. You do realize that <laughs> you're getting a job, so I don't think they're going to be sending. No, okay, I'm going to be going. I just know how it's. Good. I think it's three years now. Yeah. Three years later. I believe she's working for us. Too. Yeah, she she's is working, she's working for, for she us. She went through federal drug court. Yep, yes. and she shining. She did so well. She did so well. Even her probation officer still sends her flowers. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, yeah. she the is judge the came to her graduation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. example that she has set, and the perseverance that she showed. I use her for every example of this can be done because she was hardcore and should not have done what she did. There's Beverly, no we're way. talking about you. Well, we she, love you. She knows that. She's been on two podcasts already. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what with yeah. these clients, I, I continue to tell in this population, the deeper your story, the more change you can create. Yep. Like that's what, yep. so we just keep telling people. So Beverly will be the next one sitting here being yeah. a therapist and who knows what she'll create and what she'll do, you yep. know, and that's absolutely, all that we can do. Absolutely awesome. And there's far more of them than just her, but her story was mm -hmm. quite impressive. What I also do with my clients is I give them my phone number. That's usually a no, no. Yeah. No right? yeah. That's a no, no. Um, but it's a personal choice, and I give them my phone mm -hmm. number. If you need it, yeah. if you need it, I don't care what time of day it is, call yeah. me. It's yeah. never been abused, but I still have some former, they're still clean, yeah. but they still call and keep in touch and go, 
hey, just want to let you know I'm doing well, or I'm struggling, what do I do? Okay, let's talk about it. Well, here's the thing is because some people, the, the truth is, is that not everybody's going to be clean. I have clients mm -hmm. that call me that have been drunk and high because this is the truth about addiction. Just because you go through treatment does not mean you are going to stay sober. Right. Yep. So what happens when you don't? We need to become more honest about this. What happens if you relapse? It doesn't have to be a complete relapse. Yep. It can be a lapse. Okay, hey, call, call, right. get back in. Yep. Or, you know, here's a sponsor. Here's someone you can call. You have options. You don't have to fully relapse and ruin your life because that's and what we think we need to do but let's change this no, and that's what i that's what i tell them a relapse is when you use again and you take that road just like yep you're gone ruined. that's, that's what we feel you have to do if you are out and you think oh i can do this one more time and you mm -hmm. do it and then you go what am i thinking why did i do yeah that? this is the stupidest thing right i call right. that a f up yeah. This is the stupidest mm -hmm. thing. You wake up the next morning, you get dressed, you go to work, you call your sponsor, you call your P PO, mm -hmm. and you continue on with life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the end of your world. You just no. continue on with your life. And that seems, they're like, really? Yeah, like changing that <laughs> perception yeah. around. Yep. You're not going to tell me I'm a loser because yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah. No. it's like, no, it's like, oh. yeah, yeah, you just, you get up the next morning and go, whew. Happy I caught that one. And you go on about your life. Yeah. We are out of time. Oh, so. man. We yeah, could keep talking I forever. Know, I know. Wait. I could just keep going. It goes quickly. We're <laughs> over time, actually. But uh, so, Karen, thank you very well, much thank for, you for being having me. here. Thank you, you for are, having me. You are a shining star in our program or anybody's program, yeah. wherever you thank work. Thank you so much, Randall. And I've, I've admired... You know, because you you worked in a house behind where I work, yep. and and I see the clients interacting with you, and it's you're you're making such a difference in the world. So thank, mm -hmm. thank you. you, thank you, Randall. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing. And Rachel, thank you. you know, I just love your guts. So. I love your guts. <laughs> it's love a love fuss. Yes, it, it is. Yes, it is. Odyssey House Journals. Thank you very much for watching or listening to another edition of Odyssey House Journals.